Welcome to the All Things Uncomfortable podcast, where I, Deborah, somatic coach and trauma-informed mental wellness consultant, and Mark, CBT coach, dive deep into the realities and complexities of the human experience. We explore the intricacies of relationships, trauma healing, and the fascinating world of psychology with curiosity, openness, and courage. So today, Mark and I are exploring addiction and looking at how you or someone you know can find strategies to overcome addiction. Why are we doing this topic? Well, because we know that addiction impacts lives, both of people who have relationships with people who are addicted and those who are themselves addicted. So we also know that addiction doesn't just take the form of substance abuse. It is also manifest in behavioral addictions, which sometimes can be more socially acceptable, like the use of uh, work. You know, work addiction can be very detrimental as well. So we are going to look deeper into these things. And just to quote Vivek Murthy, who is the U.S. Surgeon General, he said, I've just understood that addiction really touches everyone's life. It's a disease that doesn't discriminate. And it's one that's taking an extraordinary toll in our communities across the country. Basically, based on a research done by the CDC, one in seven people in America, that's approximately 40 million people, suffer from substance use addiction. That's just substance use, not even behavioral addiction. As an aside, we are also going to have Mark talk a bit, share a bit about so how addiction had personally impacted his and his family's life. So to start off with, we're going to look at some of the myths around addiction and why do we need to address the myths? Because you can't really deal with what's in front of you unless you really understand the full impact of it, what it really is. You don't have the right tools unless you really understand the truth about something. So misconception number one. Addiction is a choice. Mark, yeah, tell us so, about this. So I think many people think that addiction becomes a choice in the sense that like, well, if you really put your mind to it, you can just overcome it, right? Like you can fight it day to day and get through it. And yeah, there's a very small part of that, which is part of the process of getting there. But it really, it doesn't become a choice once you're deep into it. You must understand that our brains restructure itself through a process which we've discussed many times on this podcast already called neuroplasticity. Where our brains will restructure itself towards getting those chemicals that it wants and needs because our brains are inherently lazy. And if we can flood it with dopamine and get it to have this kind of like imbalance and this beautiful mixture of like different chemicals in our brain, it's going to be like, yeah, I want that. And I want it the easiest way possible. So it's going to then create habits within you, right, to impact this. And one thing that uh, addiction does, right, it messes with that reward pathway. It looks at all the areas from the nucleus accumbens to the prefrontal cortex and it's the mesolimbic pathway which is your dopaminergic pathway and it impacts that and it's like i want to have as much dopamine in that area as possible because it makes me feel good it impacts my memory i feel like i'm more alert and then my memory is more processed but it's not and then over time because you have developed this network that's really just serving against you you're going to get a tolerance which means that your brain's going to be like well I need more of it now to be able to have the same effect. And then you get these cravings and compulsions that come out of that. And that's where you really get snared into this kind of process of developing bad habits, behaviors to feed your addiction. And that's where you get people who will start selling things out of their homes. Yeah. Whatever it may be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that adds to the next myth that we are going to address, right? That addicts lack willpower because we know that the chemical pathways in the brain are completely thrown off balance. It affects your prefrontal cortex, so it affects your logical thinking skills. So it's not really a matter of willpower or choice. It is literally a chemical change that happens in your brain that affects your ability to control your impulses or make rational decisions. So willpower is just one of the many factors among that contribute to recovery. So the next misconception that's out there is that addiction only involves substance abuse. We all know that this is not true, right? So there's addiction, addictive behaviors such as gambling, shopping, gaming. Yes, gaming is an addiction, can be yep. an addiction for certain people. I know in Korea, like someone died 
from just his addiction to playing. He wouldn't eat. He just kept playing and he died. And so that's an addiction. The fourth misconception is that addicts can quit anytime they want to. So Mark, do you have anything to say about this? Yeah, I don't think um, that's necessarily true. Addiction is actually chronic, right, in its nature. It is more complex than just being able to say to myself, okay, today is the day that I want to stop. I mean, it starts, I think that's a very good starting point, but there's a lot of physical dependence, withdrawals. We've all heard the term grand cold turkey. All these kind of things take place when you want to quit. Right. And the social setting matters too, right? So if all the triggers are there, if they're in a situation where there's no support, it's Mm -hmm. really hard to quit. If they don't have any safe place to go to and they're surrounded by other people who are addicted, that's kind of the default for them. And I think that's also why we get the notion that there's other misconception is that people and addicts are morally weak, right? Because it's actually an environment that perpetuates this cycle of going back into addiction like if you were hanging out with addicts and those are your primary friends or the people that showed you the most love or whatever it may be you're mm-hmm. not going to want to feel that i need to get out of that situation you're going to be like mm-hmm. well, in order for me to feel their love or feel their connection therefore i need to stay with the addicts and small example of what happens right um, yeah that's so understandable like that you want to be around people that you feel accepted by and if you have a loved one or you know somebody who's addicted bear that in mind and how you talk to them do they feel accepted by you? Because that's exactly. going to give you some influence over them. Sixth misconception is that treatment is always successful on the first attempt. And we know that studies have shown that recovery is a process and relapse is, in fact, a common part of that process. So it may take multiple attempts at treatment before someone actually achieves that long-term sobriety that they are hoping for. And relapse should really be viewed from a growth-minded perspective as an opportunity for learning and adjusting the treatment approach. And Mark, misconception number seven. Yeah, addiction only affects certain demographics. As we've said that it does not stigmatize against anybody, right? It doesn't discriminate. It is something that will hit you kind of at any age, gender, at any point in your life. I mean, there's a, a bit of indication that shows that addiction actually starts in your most formative years or your teenage years, but you can become an addict at 60, 90. It doesn't matter when. And mm-hmm. race doesn't really play any role in it. Yeah, there's other factors, but there is no discrimination when it comes to addiction. You will be quite surprised on who you will find to be addicts to what substances. Right. And lots of them actually hide their addiction, right? That's why you would be surprised. So that leads us to misconception number eight. Detox alone is sufficient for recovery. People always talk about detox like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go on its juice fast. When you think about recovery from substance abuse, you just think, oh, you know, we're just going to put them somewhere else where they can't have drugs. But, you know, there's a psychological dependence that has built up over time as well. And to that, it goes in, it affects your hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that mediates memory. So a lot of happy associations, happy associations associated or feelings of euphoria, like which is driven by dopamine, you know, is psychologically lodged in a person's brain. So it's really hard for them to decouple that. And when they get back into their home environments, if they're exposed to these things, it's very hard for them to be like, Oh, I'm detox. I'm done. No, because there's the emotional component of it as well. And the chemical component as well. And the memories that are so associated with happiness, right, on many levels. And also the coping mechanisms that they had developed and whether or not they have developed new coping mechanisms. So you have to look at a whole host of other support structures to help a person to be able to recover. Misconception number nine, Mark. Yeah, addicts must hit rock bottom before seeking help. Again, that's not necessarily true. You can at any point start seeking help when you realize, okay, now is the time that I need help. And it can come from just your family members being like, we are really concerned about you, right? We've seen interventions. I mean, there was a show, I forgot on what network that we don't watch interventions take place, a bit surreal. But yeah, it's not just that you have to wait for rock bottom. And often what we've seen in dealing with addiction and people are in the most severe is that rock bottom actually creates a lot of other problems that you have to deal with, let alone. Right. Um, so early uh, interventions uh, is always advised. Yeah. And if you can identify it early and deal with it earlier, it's all the more better. Yeah. Okay. And then we're going to talk about the final misconception, which is that recovery is a one-time 
event. No, it's not. It's not one, two, three, now you're free, once and done. It is an ongoing commitment and effort. It involves making concrete lifestyle changes, developing coping skills, and addressing the underlying psychological and emotional issues. It's a long-term journey and not a one-time event. And so now that we have addressed some of these misconceptions around addiction, let's understand what is an addiction. Mark, tell us more. So addiction, as I mentioned um, briefly earlier, is that it's actually quite a complex disease. It involves a lot of compulsive use of one or more different substances or even behaviors, right? It'll be a bunch of behavioral activities that don't serve you or the people around you. And they tend to be quite detrimental to your health and has like a really severe long-lasting consequences. It's a disruption of, as I mentioned before, the reward, motivation, learning, and memory processes in your brain. And it, it can damage, as we know, various different body systems as well, right? Um, down to the central nervous systems to different organs being impacted. It really is, it's a whole body affecting disease. And addiction is severe and it's chronic and it can progress. It's a relapsing disease, could reoccur at any point. So like you mentioned before, it is something that you've got to keep a tab on. And it's yeah. something that you have to get support for in order to recover. And that comes from family, friends, and right. the environment, really. Right. So it's always walking around with that awareness that you are vulnerable so that you don't overestimate yourself or put yourself in compromising situations. Like I know in Alcoholics Anonymous, they will always ask you to track the number of days that you've been sober so yeah. that you are aware, hey, I am vulnerable and I shouldn't yeah. be pushing myself beyond my limits because you don't respond to alcohol in the same way that the next person does. Like 100%. the next person might be able to stop at one, but you might want to stop at 20 or when you're under the table. And with that, we're going to look at some interesting facts about addiction. Mark, start us off. Yeah. So here's an interesting fact that is quite indicative to where our society is at, is that 75% of teenagers at some point has used addictive substances. And yes, majority of that, I think it was like 60% of it was actually alcohol. But it just shows you how regularly these things are available. I know nicotine alcohol is very easy to get. And it's a highly addictive substances. And interestingly, in the United States, that 20% of deaths in the U.S. now is due to substance use. And predominantly, it's the opiate crisis, like the fentanyl crisis, right, that, that is plaguing America at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's frightening. And it, it's something that needs to be addressed. It's something that has to be addressed pretty soon, I think, because I think that number is just going to be increasing on year to year. So here's another fact about addiction, right, is that 90% of people who engage in addictive substances don't actually really become addictive. So if you look at the people who are alcoholics to the number of people that use alcohol, it's disproportionately low. However, these things still come with a lot of risk. Right. Might be genetically predisposed, whatever. You might be to addiction. Yeah, gambling is also addiction anyway. Yes, and then I think you can just elaborate a little bit more about like how the public health experts, what they see. Yeah, okay. So there's definitely genetic predisposition to addictive substances. And in spite of the fact that 90% of people who engage in addictive substances don't develop addictions, surprisingly, public health experts in America estimate that one in seven Americans suffer from some sort of addiction whether or not it's to food, substances, technology, or other behavioral problems. And the five most addictive substances that have been singled out are, in order of increasing addictiveness, number five, alcohol, and then number four, nicotine, and number three, barbiturates. So these were sedatives that used to be prescribed more widely, but now benzodiazepines have taken over. Number two most addictive substances, cocaine. And they used to put that in our Coke drinks in the past. Not anymore, though. And number one most addictive substance is heroin. Yeah, that's actually quite telling, right? And you look at how many of those things actually, again, easily available. But... As we know, it's not just substances only, right? There's different forms of addictions. And maybe, Deborah, you can just tell us a little bit more about the differences between substance and behavioral addictions. Yeah, for sure. So the main difference between substance and behavioral addiction is that substance addictions directly impacts your brain chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas behavioral addictions center around 
engaging in behaviors and activities, which indirectly activate the brain's reward system, releasing neurotransmitters like dopamine. You know, it, dopamine is known as the reward hormone. It is, gives you a sense of acceleration and bliss, and it gives you that sense of motivation. It amps up your concentration. It mediates movement and learning. So dopamine is such an important neurotransmitter in your brain. And if you can imagine, you know, engaging repeatedly in behaviors that amp up all the dopamine in your brain so that it's completely out of balance, right? So usually what it acts as a counterweight to dopamine is serotonin. And what happens when you are out of whack with uh, this brain reward system is that dopamine, it, it's like really high and then serotonin is really low. So you're completely out of balance and you're always used to a certain level of stimulation and arousal. And without that, you feel empty and you get that craving again. Your brain's so used to that level of functioning that when you go back to normal, it just doesn't feel normal anymore. It feels really uncomfortable. So that's the impact of behavioral addictions, which simulates substance addictions. But substance addictions doesn't depend on an external activity other than, you know, finding some way to ingest the substance. And the thing about um, behavioral addictions is that it can take many forms. So you can take the form of, you know, work addiction, for example. You're just working 18 hours a day and you're so used to that, that your body starts to break down and you get hospitalized, for example. Or you're working so much that your relationships start to suffer. Your family doesn't get the care and attention they need from you and you don't get that sense of connection with them because you're thinking about work all the time. Another uh, form of addiction could be pornography, right? So a lot of men are, even women are using pornography now and in lieu of actually pursuing intimate relationships. And that affects how they relate to people. It affects how they see other people. And it also affects their brain chemistry. So some of these behavioral addictions are easier to mask. It is more socially acceptable. And in that sense, it could be even more pernicious because it's harder to identify and deal with. The difference between substance and behavioral addiction is in the bodily symptoms. What you get is uh, tolerance and withdrawal effects with substance use. So that you actually end up finding yourself needing more of that same substance. And then you have bodily withdrawal symptoms such as shakes and sweats and intense cravings with substance addictions. With behavioral addictions, you do get some discomfort in your body, You, but it, a lot of it is psychological and you may not even be able to sense it within your body at that point in time. You might just be driven to do it without any awareness of what's happening in your body. So with that said, Mark. Yes. What do you think of the earliest signs that you may have a problem with addiction? Yeah, so there's a few early signs that you may have a problem with addiction. And it's some questions that you can ask yourself and just reflect through. Because so often you need to just be aware of the early signs to be able to deal with it. But there's quite a few, so I'm just going to go through them quite quickly and then go through the questions. So there's frequent interaction. So this is like... How often do you find yourself wanting or craving that substance, right? Do you use alcohol or other drugs and want to increasingly engage with it? There's days where you just think about it like, oh, today I should have X, Y, and Z. And does this change your behavior over time? Then you will notice elements of withdrawal. Have you experienced physical emotional withdrawal? When you stop using it, again, that compulsion comes in. You might find yourself being irritable, anxious, you may even find physiological differences like you might become nauseous, vomiting. Do you find that? Are you emotionally withdrawn? Do you withdraw from your friends and family if you don't have that substance? Limited control, again, this comes down to compulsion, which is highly linked to addiction. So in other words, do you drink more than what you should? So you go tonight and you make the goal of, okay, only one drink, then you end up with five in your system. Or do you end up chain smoking at social events? So it could be something as easy as that. And also asking yourself, do you ever regret what you've done the previous day. If those kind of questions come up within yourself, you might be looking at, uh, at a problem with addiction. And you need about three or more of these, so just be aware of that. There's also negative consequences. Have you continued to use your substances despite of the negative consequences, whether it is affecting your relationships, your job, encroaching in your everyday, what should be normal functioning? So if this starts to impact those, then yeah, there's some real negative consequences and something that you have to be aware of. Do you neglect or postpone other activities? 
have you ever put off things that you should be doing, like social interactions, going to events, working on certain projects, even if it's something as simple as exercising and, and waking up at a normal time during the day. These things can all be a part of that. Significant time or energy spent, this comes down to your thoughts. You're trying to conceal things, trying to hide things, all these energy spent to kind of keep your addiction alive. How much time are you spending on that? Do you think about it all the time? What is consuming your patterns of behavior now? Is it to feed the addiction? And then also one that's also can be quite telling is the desire to cut down. You might know that all these things are happening and in the back of your head, it's kind of like a little monkey sitting back like, you should do less of this. And if you start <laughs> feeling that, then um, yeah, there might be an element where you've got to, got to look at like the desire to cut down. And again, this comes down to the way that our brains are affected, right? Like I mentioned, the first part is that it builds these networks to keep you in that trap. And you can speak a little bit more about this, I think, Deborah. Yeah. So studies on alcohol and why it's so addictive explains how basically alcohol addiction alters brain chemistry and creates a dependency. And interestingly enough, it doesn't just affect brain chemistry in terms of the actual chemical content of alcohol and what it does to you, but it is altered by your experiences within the context of your use of it. So if you're always around other people having a fun time when you're drinking alcohol, cracking jokes, you know, sharing intimate stories, of course, you're going to have positive associations with alcohol. And therefore, the next time you're feeling stressed, you're going to start thinking about going out for drinks with your friend, for example. So this brings in frights, a pleasure and pain model which says that instinctively we repeat what gives us pleasure and flinch away from that which gives us pain. This same principle can be applied to all sorts of addictions, whether or not it's alcohol or work or video games or pornography. So our brains are contextual associative machines. We associate the feeling of joy, the fleeting pleasure of alcohol with the feeling of joy. Perceptions of alcohol is cultivated over time through observations and external influences, as I mentioned earlier. A good question to ask yourself, because drinking is often associated with fun and friendship, who are your friends and what kinds of activities do they engage in, right? Mm -hmm. And to the final point on this whole Freud pain and pleasure model is that idea of the avoidance of pain. So beyond seeking pleasure, avoiding pain is an even more powerful force. So Amos Versky and Daniel Kahneman, who are both psychologists from Israel many, many eons ago, they came up with this theory called loss aversion, which is a cognitive bias that describes why for individuals the pain of losing is psychologically twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining. That means you're bound to make decisions based on this idea of the impact of pain being felt twice as strongly as the pleasure of gain. For example, the loss felt from money or any other valuable object can feel much worse than gaining the same thing. And many studies were conducted over time to show behavioral patterns of people. This loss aversion came through over and over again in all of these studies. And there's an actual neurobiological basis for this. And it's because there are three parts of the brain that are activated whenever it comes to the idea of loss. Okay, so this is real. This is biology protecting us as a species. Loss aversion activates the amygdala, the part of the brain that primarily processes fear, creating an automated pre-conscious sense of anxiety when we detect danger. So with this amygdala activation, what happens is adrenaline and cortisol shoot out from your neurotransmitters and we are energized to protect ourselves and avoid getting hurt. The second part of the brain area that's affected is the striatum, which is responsible for calculating, predicting errors, and anticipating events. So this part of the brain, it lights up and is more sensitive to loss. The third part of the brain that is to do with the avoidance of pain is the insula, which reacts to disgust. So it works together with the amygdala to encourage us to avoid certain types of behavior. So if you think about any the last time that you kind of felt like you wanted to vomit, or you just felt disgusted, your insula was doing the work of producing the impulse in you. So these are the three parts of the brain that actually push us to avoid pain. Therefore, it's so easy to get addicted if these three parts of the brains are firing away and your coping mechanism has always been to go to the bottle. 
Okay, Mark, can you tell us a little bit more about the roots of addiction? Yeah, so addiction is multifaceted, right? It comes from all these different life areas and different influences, and one huge component is actually a genetic factor. I know for families that have had other parents or siblings that have dealt with addiction, you are now at a high indication that you have a predisposition towards it, right? And there's quite a lot of twin studies that have actually looked at this genetic predisposition to addiction. There's also environmental influences, which we'll look at later, influence epigenetics, right? So you have your genetical component, you have environmental influences, where you were raised, what the, your surroundings are like what your friends and family are like, your social settings, all these kind of things will also play to you engaging in addictive substances. And then maybe through that, if you don't have that genetic lottery in your favor, you might end up getting becoming addicted. And then there's psychological factors, right? It's the way that you view the world. If you've got negative biases towards things, if you're dealing with trauma, dealing with stress, anxiety, whatever it may be, and you really just want to self-medicate, then that can also lead to addictions. So you have this like concoction of different influences that right. lead to addiction. And with, or you have this more inclined you are to become addicted. Yes. Yeah. And with addiction, the genetic predisposition research has shown there's 50% of people who are addicted actually do have that genetic predisposition to getting addicted. But the silver lining in this cloud, so to speak, is that Research has shown that epigenetics also play a big part in modulating our genetic predispositions. So what are epigenetics? Okay, so if you think of the body like it is an orchestra and the score, let's say Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, is your genes, right? The score is in front of you, so your body is going to follow the score, right? But epigenetics is like the conductor who basically indicates to the orchestra, your body, how to interpret the score. So the score is there, but some genes can actually be switched on and off depending on epigenetics. And so epigenetics acts as a counterbalance in that sense and can be turned on and off to play a major role in regulating genetic expression. Think about chef's notes on recipes, you know, where you don't blindly follow the recipe, but you actually take into consideration what the chef is telling you. So that's the role of epigenetics. And epigenetics have a dynamic and response to environmental stimuli. So this is where the whole picture of nature versus nurture comes in as well. So there is some hope there, even if you might have had other many family members who are predisposed to addiction, it doesn't mean that you are also going to become addicted. There are other moderating influences due to epigenetics. I believe that there are also physiological factors, right? Like liver enzymes that metabolize substances that are known to influence one's risk of alcohol use disorder. So this reminds me of Asian flush because I've always had that. It's kind of a derogatory term, but you know, it's true. I do get red when I drink one or two cups of wine and glasses of wine. And this is because we lack an enzyme that in the liver that helps to metabolize substances in alcohol that are toxic. So this means that we get intoxicated a lot more easily than the next person who actually has those enzymes that break down toxins in alcohol. So if you have those enzymes in spades, it's much more likely that you're going to drink more because you're going to feel the pain of it less acutely than, for example, yours truly, right? So yeah. that is a physiological factor that moderates how prone you might be to you know, taking more alcohol and then in turn getting addicted. And another thing that studies have shown is that men are more likely to develop substance use disorder than females, although there is a gender gap to for narrowing with um, alcohol use disorders. Females are also more subject to intoxication effects at lower doses of alcohol. So there are two things at work here. One could be that men's way of coping is not so much focused on, you know, sharing emotionally or bonding with other people as women do. Women do tend to be more open about the things that they are going through and maybe they get more emotional support. So a lot of men might just try to like suppress or like they bond over alcohol even, right? So there are all these social factors and gender-based factors that could lead to men developing uh, substance use disorders such as becoming addicted to alcohol. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a bit about the roots of addiction. Right. Mark, can you maybe 
delve a bit more into what some personality factors that could influence addiction? So one thing that a lot of research has shown and what you do see when people who are addicts, they tend to be quite impulsive. They're the people who want to seek a lot of sensations. Even adrenaline junkies tend to become people who are addicted to substances or even behavioral addictions, such as adrenaline-seeking behavior like gambling addiction or doing extreme sports and, and throwing themselves in these dangerous situations just to get that endorphin and dopamine kick. It's also people who are highly compulsive personalities also personalities that create addictions and will also increase the chances of relapse. So it's right. generally it's people who need the sensations, who need to feel that fulfillment in, in what they're doing and it's always chasing the next thing. Right. That's where work, work addiction can come in. Exactly. I was just thinking about that, chasing yeah. the next thing, right? Yeah. Yep. So a lot of this comes, when we talk about roots, we want to also talk about trauma and abuse, right? Because early exposure to significant adverse experiences can contribute to the development of substance use disorders or addictive behaviors by basically overwhelming an individual's coping ability. And when you're a kid and you're in an environment that is not emotionally supportive, where you don't feel safe, where you're being abused, what happens to your brain is that the brain pathways of alarm and distress are sensitized. And this adds to the burden of stress and your brain gets stuck in survival mode. So the survival brain creates the sense of misperception, ambiguity and threat. Even as an adult, even if you're in a different environment, your survival brain is stuck in that mode. And what happens is that your stress reaction is all the more stronger. So you're unable to cope, you know, develop an tolerance of uncomfortable sensations in a body. So the way out from survival brain into what we call safe brain, where we're able to function, you know, at a more comfortable pace and take things with equanimity, is to be able to develop that tolerance for the uncomfortable sen sensations instead of running to whatever addictive substance you use or behavior you use to numb yourself or distract yourself from them, right? So it's only through growing our ability to tolerate discomfort within our bodies that we can gain the capacity to move through our challenges and the knowledge that we can safely come through to the other side of a difficult experience. And speaking of difficult experiences with regards to addiction, Mark, you did mention that to me that you've had personal experiences around addiction and we'd love to hear what you have to share, what you feel comfortable sharing with us. Yeah, no worries. So my family history is actually quite interesting when it comes to addiction. I have a father that was addicted to alcohol and prescription medications. And then I have an uncle that was also addicted to alcohol. So it's quite prevalent within my family. And that's why I need to be aware of these genetic predispositions and be aware that maybe I may have an addictive personality and then make sure that it's something that I look at right. And dealing with it, it was actually you know, growing up quite a challenge. Having a parent that was addictive, addicted to something just showed me the different personalities that come out when it comes to addiction. Like my father, when he was an alcohol, was obviously a very different person to what he is off of it. And this obviously had a, quite a detrimental effect on my family. And one thing that led my dad to wanting to recover was the threat of loss and seeing that there was loss, right? He had to come to a point, and I wouldn't say that it was necessarily reaching rock bottom, but he had to see rock bottom looming for him in order to make changes. So I remember there was a time where my mother would say, like, I'm going to take the kids away from you. I'm going to take myself away from you, and we're going to move. And, yeah, during that time when we actually did move away for a bit, and there was a lot of pushback from my father, and this is something that you would also see with anybody who's dealing with substance addictions, especially when they're confronted with it in a very harsh way. There's going to be pushback. They're going to be like, well, why do I need to change this? I don't see there's anything wrong. I've got a handle on this. All the excuses come up. But there came a point where he could no longer give excuses. There came to a point where he realized his excuses were a lie to himself. Mm -hmm. And he eventually got to a point where he said that he'll go to rehabs and get to a point where he's like, I need to go get professional help to be able to deal with this. And it was just very interesting to see. Obviously, my parents are quite social beings, so they had a lot of friends. And just how the friends got around him during this time, went to visit him. Mm. 
um, was supportive to him when he came out, made sure that there was no alcohol available to him um, when he first started. Um, yeah, by the grace of God, he hasn't touched alcohol since. Wow. So, yeah, it's been about 17 years that he's has been alcohol-free, which is quite a testament because when you look at these things, alcoholism is one of the most difficult to actually break the chain. Right. Right, and it's only 4% of alcoholics actually recover. Oh, wow. Is, yeah, which is unbelievably small. So my dad, by, the, by grace, falls within that, right? And yeah. Um, How did it impact you? I'm curious, when you were going through all of that and seeing your dad act out in ways that, you know, you didn't, see him as that person but it was almost like he became a different person and then seeing your mom you know come to a point where she was like you know shape up or ship out like how did yeah. all of that affect you so at the time i was like 15 going to 16. Uh, it was something that i like for a while i felt like i had shame of like i had to hide the fact that my dad was this broken person so I felt like quite an element of shame when dealing with people, even people who didn't know what was going on. I would be like, what if they somehow smell it out, right? So there was this real sense of shame that I had. It was tough because a father to a son is meant to be like a role model, somebody you meant to look up to. And I felt like I lost that like essence of like, who is this masculine figure for me? And then from that, I started to question kind of my own existence. Like what is reality, right? Because this, this dad that I knew and know to be so loving, to be caring, to be somebody who I could look up to in terms of a source of strength, especially growing up in those formative years. And then to all of that just being ripped away and, and seeing a dad that didn't behave accordingly, one who actually yeah, threatened me at one point. And, um, yeah, it, it, it was hard. It's not an easy place to be. It led to me developing depression because during that time I'd also lost a brother. Yeah, there's there's just a bunch of things there that had an impact on my entire family. That must have been so heavy for everybody, including yourself. That's heavy for everyone, right? Um, yeah. yeah trauma, trauma is always heavy. It's never something there that's like, oh, yeah, you can just easily overcome these things. But I've seen firsthand what proper intervention can do. And uh, right. there's a real spiritual element to that too. Because my dad right. does it great. And, and I think it's something that's important to look at. It's not something that we really easily discuss is like how to seek spiritual within these things, right? Because right. I do spiritual beings. We're not just purely psychological. Yep. Um, look after yourself, mind, body, and spirit. That is yeah. something that I go by a lot. And it really seemed as if what helped was your mom also like following through on drawing those boundaries with him, giving him hard choices to make in a sense, and then I guess making him really evaluate what's important, right? What's worth yep. fighting for. Because at the end of the day, if it's just you that you're living for, then it's so easy to abandon yourself to alcohol in a sense, right? But if other people matter to you, then you're going to try to want to make it that work, right? And then it seemed as if you guys were located within a community of people that actually really cared, right? People who didn't judge your father or condemn him for his habits, but wanted to see him in a better place and actually did concrete things to, to help encourage him and build him up, right? And, you know, restore him to a sense of sobriety. So yeah. it really did, does seem to me that being in community, being around people who are good influence in you and who will actually go out of their way to help you, even if it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do is a big component of healing from that addiction. And from what I understand, your dad also had to ask for help, right? He had to reach yeah. out to people. Yeah, and that was a, it was very much a continuation, uh, constant asking for help for years. Felt like he could handle it. And uh, yeah, he now has like quite a very good handle on it and uh, he can help many people with it as well and, and he's wow. all about it and yeah it's been at some point probably the hardest thing that he's ever been through but it's now i think one of the most empowering things that he's been through right well, and determination is yeah unmatched wow it's and like it's that whole thing right and it's an element that we're like seneca right i think he said it going now into stoic philosophy is that he said that in order to be a leader, a man must be in fully control of himself. And he actually came up with that conclusion because he was the right-hand man to Nero, Emperor Nero. 
And Nero had a lot of issues. He wasn't in control of himself. And he said, ultimately, he's not fit to be leader because he doesn't control himself. And I think it comes to a point where if you want to deal with addiction, it, it's, it comes to through a whole process where you can be like, okay, now I'm in control of myself. And it's that resilience building. But it takes mm-hmm. and a very aware that it's yeah. to somebody who's an addict. Just be in control of yourself. It takes right. a process to be in control of yourself. It's, a, it's being aware of how it's affecting you, how it's affecting the people around you. Um, right. Being aware of what it's doing to your body. And that takes yeah. a while to get to, right? Because when you're in that haze, it's very easy to just lose that awareness and cognition and that you're not paying attention to things around you or people around you. So it's it takes a while to get to that point where you're aware, where you can exert that self-control and that will. And speaking of resilience, I'm sure it was not an easy journey for your dad and his victories were hard won. And I think a lot of that strength and courage came from also being around other people who were encouraging him, right? So we don't work in isolation. And one of the things that maybe a lot of people who have tried to recover from addiction find most discouraging is that sometimes you do relapse. And so that's why it's so important to bring into your recovery plan a growth mindset so that you do understand that even if you do relapse today or it has an impact that you don't give up on yourself, that you continue to pull yourself back, ask for the help that you need and just get back on the horse again and keep going forward. Right. And I think one of the things that your dad probably had to overcome too, correct me if I'm wrong, is the sense of stigma and shame that can be associated to any kind of addiction. Because, you know, all those misconceptions about addiction that we talked about earlier, I think comes back full force when you find yourself no longer the CEO of your own life. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, alcohol is now the CEO of your life. So it's so easy to fall into that cycle of like shame and self-rejection and you know feel like you can't tell this to anybody because they're going to be like well what the hell's wrong with you like just snap out of it right like especially if they're stuck in those misconceptions about what addiction is so how did your dad overcome that sense of stigma and shame around it and get the help that he needed yeah i think it would be best to ask him if he was here but from my observations right is for him to firstly address that he had the problem you had to look the monster in the eye and be like, okay, I'm not going to let that monster hide in the closet. I'm not going to let it be something that isn't there. So I think it's taking away its teeth, right? Taking away its ability to chomp at you. And that's done by facing and saying it's there. I know mm. that I've got a problem. And you break the stigma for yourself internally first. Like, yeah, I have a problem. I'm not the only one who's dealing with these kind of things around the world. I know that it can be dealt with, right? And then... I think the shame also comes from the same process, right? That you need to be aware that you have this issue and and just say to yourself, like, I need to take away the shame in order to deal with it appropriately. It's not something that you can do very easily. I don't think it takes a bit of a process. Recovery, I would say it took my dad from what I recall and remember about six to eight years to really get to a point where he felt like, okay, now I've got it. It's not an easy thing. And there'll be moments where I think stigma and shame rears its head, um, even a couple of years into it, and just mm-hmm. being away like, okay, this is going to happen. So when it happens, right. don't be fearful of it in, in some way. Right. Yeah. And like, did he seek out any counseling or yep. therapy in that process? Yeah, he did. So he was definitely yes. equipped then, right, yeah. through that yeah. process as well. So what do you think are some good questions to ask yourself or your loved one who is addicted if they want to break free? I think there's some things you got to ask, right? Is firstly, do you want to be free from your addiction? Enjoy the way your life is meant to be lived, right? Like, do you really want to have these chemicals put into your body to produce chemicals, harmful chemicals, often poisons that come into your body? And they produce certain elements of dopamine. And it's just unusual that it works that way, but it does. In other words, do you want to break free from the chemical bondage? And then you've got to ask yourself, do you want it enough to do whatever it takes to turn your life around? Because it really takes a lot of grit. Are you willing to risk hoping again in different things, right? In spite of disappointment and failure. So you're going to have to realize that, yeah, there's going to be times where I might relapse. This is going to be a tough journey. There might be all these issues, but you've got to create that element of resilience and create that notion of hope that things can't get better. 
And then are you willing to allow yourself to be guided in the process to seek external help to hit this in the long range, range right on the long road? Yeah, right. You can't do it alone. You need to go with a group of people who are supportive and who understand you. And it is always uh, helpful to just, you know, break number one, the truth to yourself, face up to the truth. And then from there, you can start sharing with people who are closer to you about what you're dealing with. And if it's hard for you to articulate in words, maybe even writing a letter to express yourself would be the best way to communicate that you actually really need help and what you know is happening inside of you. We've touched on a few things on how you can overcome addiction. So we've talked about how there are treatment options, including you know, detox, rehab programs, therapy like CBT, which is what Mark does, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then somatic experiencing, which is what I do to help people feel that sense of safety and home within their bodies so that they can um, have a greater window of tolerance when stress hits. How do you cope? And that's all part and parcel of how you alleviate those addictive impulses and learn how to face life in a way that it's not self-defeating. We've talked about the importance of support from family and friends. And then when you suffer from alcohol addiction, you can go to AA, which has been very well proven to have very good rates of sobriety restored amongst its members. It is so important to have ongoing professional help and personalized treatment plans. As we mentioned earlier, you know, uh, overcoming addiction is not a once and done thing. It's an ongoing process. It means that you need to be vigilant and aware of yourself. Even if you may not touch the bottle for like 100 days, it doesn't mean that your vulnerability is suddenly gone. And on this point, we just want to just look at one last thing, which is this question, this burning question I have, Mark. Before I even started this podcast, I wondered, can you replace unhealthy addictions with healthy addictions? Yeah. Okay. Maybe the word addiction yeah. is not the right word, but yeah. is this something you can get fascinated by or like, you know, invest yourself into that could sort of maybe take the role of whatever that addiction was doing for you before? Yeah. So... I think when it comes to a lot of therapy, right, and uh, clinical prevention and these things, there's this notion of harm reduction. Because addiction is a journey, I mean, dealing with addiction and, and recovery is a journey. You can't just say that today I'm going to stop and then stop cold turkey. It's going to cause problems for you as well, depending on what substance you're on, it might be more severe than others. So you have this notion of harm reduction, right? And you see elements of this when it comes to nicotine use. People generally smoke cigarettes or they get addicted to vaping or some form of gaseous exchange in that way. That has harmful effects to your lungs. Now there are such things as nicotine patches or pouches that you put in your mouth. I still don't advocate for those, but it's a form of harm reduction. So it's breaking the cycle down. Let's stop smoking so your lungs don't get damaged. If you still have that nicotine uh, addiction, let's deal with that and slowly wean you off it, right? And then it comes to a point, okay, what can you put in that is positively the same thing? Again, is there such a thing as a positive addiction? How much, again, it affects you with functions, right? Like how is it interfering with your daily life? Or do you have a control over it? Does it well, maybe the word addiction wasn't right. I think yeah. when I think about the example of your dad and how he's turned around and he's gone to speaking to other people who are addicted, so to speak, and how he's helping to transform their lives, right? And that's a really big preoccupation in his life right now. And that gives his life a sense of meaning and yep. purpose. It helps his story to sort of touch the lives of others. And, you know, what was adverse, an adverse condition for him has now been turned into something that can help other people out of their own adversity. And yep. what I remember is that there was a quote that goes something to the effect of like the final stage in healing is when you turn around and start helping other people to heal. Correct. And I think that Maybe in a sense, like it's not an addiction, so to speak, but it is um, something that you can focus on and it gives you a life sense of meaning and purpose and it helps you to connect authentically with other people and help them themselves feel a sense of hope, you know, even in distressing circumstances. Yeah, I think it is 
you're right, there's certain habits, right? There's certain things that you can do or activities to break that. My dad had a few of those. He got a little bit more caught up in work, but he also likes to build things. So he started using his hands more to build things, right? So it's things that kept him preoccupied. And in the beginning, you definitely need that. Uh, you need those things that'll keep your mind preoccupied to break those habits down, to create new neural pathways, to use neuroplasticity in your favor. Um, and just be aware that throughout the process, you do have an addictive personality. So it's about just keeping an eye on these certain things, because I know exercise is fantastic, but people can become exercise addicts, right? <laughs> yeah, um, they can. Yeah, so it's like, it's great for rewiring your brain. Like walking is one of the best things you can actually do for your mind. And there's a lot of research. Wow. Yep. So getting into that and being with friends again, right? Getting that social fix. There's a lot of activities that you can do that yeah. replace the negatives and it's vitally important to actually have those but right yes, there are definitely things that you need to be doing and actively need to be doing in your process of recovery yeah. right just to wrap things up so whatever your addiction is whether or not it is to alcohol or if you have a shopping addiction food addiction exercise addiction work addiction remember that there are concrete steps you can take to break out of this addiction if you really want to start with finding a support group or accountability partners right get your family and friends behind you ask them to check in on you ask them to be invested in helping you to get out to break out of this in addiction take some immediate steps like finding a counselor or practitioner to help you to develop um, a system so that you can break free of addiction and then we want to focus on really good nutrition for your brain. You want to avoid foods that are not nutrient, like sugar It causes addictions as well. So make sure that you eat healthy foods and check with online or check with your nutritionist on what would comprise of healthy food. And then, of course, you want to prioritize sleep and rest, keep your stress levels down, and most of all, be kind to yourself. Right. That's the one thing that we always emphasize for anyone and everyone who's on their own healing journey to be kind to yourself, because that's when things will start to turn around for you. And if you follow the link in the show notes, you will get access to a worksheet that will help you to craft out plan for recovery, as well as find accountability partners and to do the pros and cons of staying addicted versus breaking free of addiction. So Click in on that link. You can share that with anybody you like and use it yourself. We hope today's episode has been helpful for you in understanding addiction and understanding how to overcome it. Mark, thanks again for your generous sharing of your family stories as well as contributing in all the other areas around addiction. Thank you. Yeah, it was a great discussion. Very interesting. And a lot of this can be put into a lot more depth, but I think it's a very good place to start. And again, if you or someone that you know has got problems with addiction. I do encourage you to find the support groups, find the friends, but also look at this worksheet. It's a great tool to just get that ball rolling and create the momentum. Deborah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Well, folks, that's it for the month of January. I hope you enjoyed the podcast on overcoming addiction and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast so as to boost our ratings. And don't forget to click in on the link included in the show notes to download the Relapse Prevention Plan Worksheet. Join us in February for our podcast on genuine friendship, where we will discuss questions such as what does true friendship look like? How do you tell a true friend from a fake one? And what you can do to surround yourself with true friends and be a friend yourself.